Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us again for part three of our very long episode covering Peter Honebein's book for the American Marketing Association back in 1997 on strategies for effective customer education. So this is a, a really great conversation that Adam and I were having, and we hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Do you want to talk uh, briefly about like the, the user-centered design and multifaceted team stuff that he talks about before we go on to the next chapter? Yeah, I, I think the only thing I'd, I'd pick up on here is that when I was looking, when I was reading through and I'm making my notes in the margins, it, we have this need for big picture. And again, all the things we talk about on this show and about our industry is that if we go, well, where does customer education live and who do we work? You know what's irrelevant? No matter where you live, you're going to be working cross-functionally with people in your organization. Um, I liked how he had mentioned embedding someone early on in the product team from an education resource, like a documentation person, critical. We still do that, right? That's that's super important. If do, I don't necessarily call documentation to education, but it is a form of education. It's just the first Documentation one is part of that. customer education. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's a core pillar of most of the programs that I've led. It is a core pillar, but sometimes it, like all the programs that I've led have been had it split off. And and that's and I would like to actually have it part of the program because then you see cradle to grave all, the entire constellation of your educational topology. Yeah, and and now that you mention it as well, it's like interesting that he's kind of bifurcating the BBS from the docs. Mhm. Mm and the training because he's putting the docs and the training in customer education, but he's putting the forums slash community <laughs> in support. Yeah. So it's kind of like, why is one in one and why, like, and why isn't the community considered to be a customer education activity? I don't know. But it's, it's interesting to see now, like we're, we're kind of recategorizing all of these into a new model uh, where now they're all coming together to be part of, an educational ecosystem that serves support and service goals and marketing goals as well. Yeah. So that's that. Um, and now we get to the part of the book where uh, this is kind of the equivalent of the original Claudia Gaillard Mir book, where now we're doing uh, case studies and these are quicker case studies. Uh, it's not the bulk of the book in the same way that the 1984 book was. Um, I think like we can, Kind of Let's go through this quick because I, I think this could get really long if we went into details. Yeah, so like like the first example is like Pfizer Animal Health educating people on how to vaccinate cows more effectively to reduce blemishing. So we probably don't need to talk about that. Um, but like maybe one thing to call out is in each case he talks about uh, with the case study like what real world outcome did customer education generate so here like the actual outcome that they were measuring was it lower it did lower blemishes and it raised yeah. sales of their like ultra back vaccine yeah yeah and uh the on page if you're, you have to have the book look at the picture on page 122 the increase in equity i think the point to say in some of these well, this is schwab here, this is the next one. Oh, that's why oh sorry you're talking about schwab now or I'm talking let's, about well, now let's, now let's talk about Schwab. So Schwab, like we mentioned, it's more for like self-directed investors who otherwise wouldn't be using a broker. And they, uh, sort of like Merrill Lynch in the 1984 book, are doing seminars in their offices led yeah. by branch personnel. And they're also giving their customers like third-party reports. Um, again, like in the spirit of like building trust and like giving them more like neutral, unbiased education on how to be better investors. So yeah, now, now we get to that that uh, graph that you're talking about. Sorry about, I jumped ahead there, but I was thinking about that. Like the visual, seeing that things are, there it is. Uh, the only comment that we'd have to make on that is you can't necessarily always decouple other activities from that, but getting those kinds of graphs and showing leadership, look, you're investing in this uh, Dave, program. For the, for the audio podcast, should we describe what the graph is? Yeah, the graph is... So it's basically showing like client equity year over year. So client equity here means like how much money they've invested plus the return on those investments. So like not only are they getting people to invest more, but getting better returns on their investments because they're more educated investors. It goes from like in 1994, which I think is before they do the program is uh, it's like 
120 or so. And then in 1995, it's up to like billion. Yeah. In 1995, it's up to like 170 or something like that. You know, some 50, 50 billion. I mean, that's a lot of money. It's 52 billion. Yeah. That's a lot of money. It says, it says in the book. Yeah. And you're right. Like this can't be reduced. And he talks about this later in the book. Like, you can't reduce all of this to like, this only happened because of customer education. Um, but like, that's a really meaningful result to point to in terms of educating your, your investors. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then we get to uh, 3M as the next case study. This is sort of a pandemic related one because they're talking about uh, 3M respirators. So this is like, like we had, we had vaccines a moment ago and now we have respirators. There's a lot of like pandemic foreshadowing in this book. Um, but what did they do? This is like they had a council where they had their uh, marketing and communications team, their tech services team, and their sales training team all come together to work on educational programs. Cool. Uh, and they were inviting like distributors to teach them how to sell the right products and teach end users to care for them. And then they had this like top tier program where the distributors got this all expenses paid seminar with product training and value selling and leadership and performance coaching. So like going way beyond teaching them how to use the product, but like helping them be better distributors, which I think was kind of a cool model for the reseller use case. That's yeah, that's really cool. I'll, I'll tell you like some of these cases that we're talking about here, I've had personal exposure to like, I worked in a pharma plant and I had to wear respirators in certain parts of the plant to go do things. And you know what's the scariest thing in the world, Adam, is when you're finding yourself in a situation. Spiders. Where, yeah. Well, don't visit Seattle in October or September. Um, but that that understanding that, that that kind of stuff, you could be in a world of hurt if you don't know how to use it right. Yeah, and that, totally. That, 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 that is scary because in the laboratory, there were, there were times where I was actually physically scared because of something I had to go do. And I'm like, I, I don't know if I want to do that. So then I'm looking at those materials and the training that I have on how do you fit a respirator? How do you do a fit mm -hmm. test? How, you know, how do you make sure that it's going to stay on when you're sweating and you're trying to like dump out, you have this huge bin of material you're trying to work through and stuff's all in yeah, there. Yeah. I mean, it makes, it you makes customer education like, yeah, the consequences here are, are life and death. Yeah, not so much in software, but I mean, it's important. Yeah. Hey Dave, my customer education bookshelf is looking a little lonely. Any recommendations? Hey, here's a thought, Adam. Have you checked out Daniel Quick and Barry Kelly's new customer education playbook? Well, I mean, I'm a bit biased here because I'm actually in it, but uh, I think that's a great addition because it lays out the steps to run a customer education program in a super clear, practical way. And it's full of tips from other great leaders who are doing the job every single day. Hey, that's right, and I'm in it too. But seriously, I'm a SaaS book enthusiast, so I'm gonna go out and have Barry and Daniel sign my copy today. <laughs> that's great. And if you want one, head over to thoughtindustries.com slash playbook to get your copy. That link's in the episode description, so get reading today. Yeah, and like, again, same thing. This goes back to like, what is the purpose? Like, like is, is it compliance? Is it safety? Is it marketing? So then like, like, they have a compliance one here where they talk about safety clean, yeah, uh, who they're a recycle, they recycle industrial and automotive waste. So their customers are like auto shops, and they need to comply with their regulations on how to dispose of the waste. So this is actually an interesting one, because this is actually the disposal use case, yeah, as well case. as the compliance loose case It's basically like the two things that we talked about earlier, not being too relevant to our world. But um, their program was sort of like a, an L&D compliance training program, but they were doing it for their customers. So the customers could learn how to comply. So not much to say about that one, uh, except that afterwards uh, we get to visit our friends at Hewlett Packard. Yay. So now we've got, now we've got a tech one. And, and furthermore, what's interesting here is this is the first example in the book that we see where we're actually looking at a tech services organization. So this is HP's education services program and it's on their professional services team and they have uh, personas for education. So um, they, they split it into three and it's not an even three. Uh, they start with their first persona being executives and executives get pretty much like white glove, customized training, mostly presentations. It's probably people like sitting with their 
their EAs in the office, like training them yeah. on, on uh, how to do uh, whatever it is. Um, but it's like very high level. And I think more related to like teaching them about the industry versus like how to actually use the software uh, or hardware, I guess HP is hardware. Um, then there's IT managers. So they're getting trained more on like the practices uh, associated with IT. So they're getting trained on like risk management, org change, business process improvement, uh, how to invest in IT. Um, so this is more like industry and domain training. And then you get to the product training, right? Because then you've got the <laughs> curriculum for and IT handling. professionals and users. Yeah, exactly. So this is where most of the curriculum is. So for the IT professionals and end users, they have over 100 courses organized into curriculum paths that are focused on the actual technologies. It's a lot. So that's, that's where, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, it's a huge catalog. And they're publishing <laughs> like gigantic training catalogs, I think, that have all of the, the, the course descriptions in there. And you have your choice on how to, uh, uh, how, to, how to consume this training. So you can go to scheduled public classes that are at HP training sites, and they're led by HP instructors. And include some best practice sharing among the participants. So this is like public ILT. Right. Uh, dedicated courses for customers with some customization. So they'll go like on site to the customer and they'll give like, they'll, they'll like flip out the, the use cases to make it more relevant to like what industry the customer's in. Uh, then they've got like self-paced courses, which are quote print online or on video. Uh, and then they do these uh, technical satellite seminars, which are these live broadcasts that cover advanced topics and emerging technologies. So that's more of like a one-way broadcast right. to their customers right. uh, and is also offered on uh, videotape. But this is interesting, right? Because like this is not too different from kind of the standard selection of educational services offerings. Public courses, custom on-site ILT, self-paced. Yeah. Webinars. Kind of our bread and butter. It's the same thing. Yeah. I like how um, this yeah. time we're introducing the personas as well. That's, it, it, it's maybe funny and maybe remarkable sometimes that as I'm working with people and I'm, I'm, you know, sidling up to strategy, I always say, well, who are our personas? Who are we educating? What do they need to know? You know, what, what is the audience like? What, what do they know already? Um, what role do they play? How, how are they going to adopt? What are the risks that they've got? So that's really cool to see all of this stuff laid out and very evocative of what we do today. Yeah, for sure. And interesting to see, like, again, where the results are pointed at here. Like here, it really is. It's customer satisfaction and, and it's, revenue. it's revenue. Yeah. It's, it, the system, this has all been here again. We're, we're evidencing that the plays that we have today are similar than what we've done before. We're just elevating in a different context. Yep, for sure. So let's barrel through a couple of chapters left. Um, we're back to the Addy model now. So now we're actually talking about implementing customer education programs. And this is where we, we put the marketing hat back on. And he's basically saying, uh, if you treat your education program like a product, then you need to be doing product marketing for your education product. So now we're getting meta, yep. but we're using marketing skills again. And so he recommends like having a positioning statement for your training. Um, but also then I guess basically talks about the different ways that you can position training and how you can package it and when it's appropriate based on um, what it's trying to do. So for example, oh, yeah. do you remember this? Yeah. Yeah, this was this was interesting because you're positioning it to different folks like a knowledge builder. And you know, we want to position, we want to make customers comfortable buying. And this is the yeah. Gibson example. And I think Gibson is one that Bill Cashard talked about. Bill Cashard has um, talked about Gibson too. Yeah. Yeah, he's talked about that as well. So, so yeah, so there's so there's there's four. There's there's knowledge builder, which you talked about. Um, That's like Gibson yep. teaching you how to buy the product. They're they're building your knowledge about how to get comfortable buying a product. Yep. Uh, there's the most common one is positioning it as a product feature. So for example, like manuals, instructional videos, that's part of the product. It's bundled into the product. You're not going to like buy a product that doesn't have an instruction manual. Mm -hmm. So that's bundled uh, as a product feature. Uh, the next one is value added service. 
So this is more about like adding trainings and uh, additional education, uh, like educational offerings that uh, are either intended to meet customer needs and expectations uh, or increase their switching costs to go to another vendor uh, or ultimately to build loyalty. Um, so the way he describes these is like customers don't expect these experiences, but will value them. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last one, like you, you were saying, you were about to say was like standalone product positioning. So. Yeah. I think, I think like, all this stuff yeah. is really important. And if you go through it, like uh, the value add, um, you know, I can get information I have. There's, there's updates on the product. There's bulletins, there's communications happening all the time. We're, we as a customer are feel loved and we feel like we have attention. We know that it's there if we need it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so he, he ties this to basically to like pricing and how you would detect when you're, uh, when it's a good candidate for what. So like in the most oh, common yeah, one, like which that. is like the product yeah, feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What were you going to say? No, I say go ahead with this because I think this is really important. Like as you know, you're doing the pricing. Yeah. Okay. So so yeah. So he ties pricing to to the model that we just shared. So like, if it's a product feature, it's expected to be free. And no, the cost of education no, included. What do you mean? No, he says okay. Include yes. It's expected to be <laughs> no. I'm splitting hairs, but it's not. It's expected to be free in the perspective of the customer. It's expected to be part of the purchasing price of the product. Yep. Yeah. So like you wouldn't pay separately for a manual, for instance. For, I'm only pushing back on that product. concept of free is that I hate using that term free because in any case, free is devalued. And, and then, yeah, and then which we saw a lot picture. in the 1984 book. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm quoting him. He says, he says, customers often expect the customer education will be free mm -hmm. in that scenario. Um, but he also calls out to your point that this is changing in 1997 um, as companies are outsourcing their training to vendors, uh, which again, we kind of compare to the value perceptions from the 1984 book, where as uh, vendors are taking on the role of training people on how to use products, then uh, companies are more willing to pay vendors to do this because they're no longer paying internal staff to do it. So yeah, it's expected to be included. Um, when it's a knowledge builder, that's the other one we talked about, it's uh, also expected to be free not included because you haven't bought anything. Yeah. Um, but the point here is, is you're trying to build trust. So if you're educating someone on the market or on how to buy your product more intelligently, you wouldn't like charge them how to do that because they haven't even bought the product yet. I think that's the idea. Yeah. And that one I track with because it is truly, it, it's part of your marketing cost, I guess, and your sales costs where you need yeah, to get a certain yeah. amount of information out to be able to even understand what the product can do. Yeah, like on um, your financial statements, this would all be part of customer acquisition costs. Yeah, agreed. And then when it's uh, when it's positioned as a value add, it usually has a price, he calls out. Um, and there's an expectation that it'll have a return for a customer. So I right. think this is like where a lot of customer education is today. Mm-hmm. Where it's not like it's not the manual, like that's included. You get access to documentation. You don't have to pay extra for that. But if you want the training that shows you how to get extra value or teaching you something else about your space, we're going to charge for that. Right. That's not expected to be free. But the most interesting one, I think, is when he talks about this like standalone product positioning, because it's 1997 and we're about to go down the path of a lot of uh, education services teams kind of turning into standalone training products where they're basically these like businesses that are adjacent to any sort of uh, software or hardware that, that like the business is selling. So he says, when should you package training as, or education as a standalone product? He says, if the company has expertise in a certain discipline um, and I would add, and that expertise is in demand, uh, then it might be a standalone service. So the examples he gives here is like the slopes, the, the resort giving ski lessons. Ski lessons are a standalone product mm -hmm. that has value for an in-demand skill. Golf lessons, that's another example. So the quote here is, customer desire to become proficient is high enough that they are willing to pay for knowledge. And I want to call this out for a moment because I think like a lot of the time we 
think about the business model first. We think like, oh, we need to create a standalone training services business um, because like that's what we need to do for like the balance sheet when we haven't done the work that he describes here first and said, is there actually demand for hmm. the training that we're offering such that customers are, are willing to pay for it independently of the product that they're buying? Right. So absolutely, know your we customer. should charge for training where we're delivering value. But yes, we also have to make sure that there is demand for those customers to actually purchase the training. So he recommends standalone mm -hmm. training if... Like there's, there's criteria that he gives. And I love this because I've never seen anyone articulate it this way. Uh, one is customers demand access to your knowledge bases. Uh, he doesn't mean here like a knowledge base, like a help center. He means like the actual knowledge that your internal people have that the customer doesn't. So right. if you want to work with an expert and have the expert teach you how to do stuff, uh, then maybe it can be a standalone offering. Uh, number two, customers can turn the knowledge of your product into a business. So the example here he gives is Macromedia, who got bought by Adobe. They were the yeah. ones who made Flash, but they also had Macromedia Director. And the Macromedia Director had a standalone training uh, services business uh, that trained people to form agencies around their product. So you could be like a third-party Macromedia Director agency creating content for your own customers. And then yeah. if you were doing that, you would be willing to pay Macromedia to teach you how to start a macromedia director agency, right? Yeah. Uh, third one is your product deals with leisure activities. That's the skiing, golfing thing. Four, the educational product will not offend customers in terms of feeling that you are trying to squeeze every last dime from them. That's the value perception thing. Yeah. Uh, this is the one I feel like we get most like hung across in, in SaaS, right? Because sometimes there is that value perception of like, oh, I'm already paying so much for your product. I'm not gonna pay for the training too. So I feel like that's the one that's always kind of like the question mark for us. Yeah, uh, it and it's infuriating. Yeah. It is infuriating. Next one, there's historical presence in the marketplace for offering standalone customer education vehicles. So this could be like, oh, uh, uh, Microsoft offers this as a standalone training, so we can too. Uh, and finally, competitors offer similar products and services. So if, you're, if your competitor offers standalone training services, then you have precedent to offer your own standalone training services. But I think like a lot of companies just jump straight into having a standalone business model because like they're like, oh, services is just what you do, but they haven't considered these factors. And thus they have a lot of trouble actually generating demand for their standalone services. I think that's really important to, to sit with for a little bit because, you know, I've been in those teams and you might have too, where we're like, oh, we need an education team. Okay. Somebody said that. Somebody declared a budget for it and then they go. So now we have an education team. And what you said at the end of that is like, Hey, you know, we, we really haven't done this, the thinking about it. We haven't done the strategic thinking that is like, what are you here to solve? What are you here to do? And if you don't do that early on and make that plan and build that model, the business model around that function, then often what, what happens is you're, you're not connected into the business as well as you could be. People might not be aware of you. Your executives might go like, uh, well, what are you doing here? You might get cut. Um, I don't know. I guess we're, we're circling back to say strategy is a really important strategic thinking is a really important part of this. And if you're going to build a program and put that kind of resources into it, you should think about it a little bit. Yeah. You should, you should not be implementing a pro because remember we're in Addy, like you shouldn't be implementing a program if you haven't done the analysis first. Yeah. Or even the hard, yeah. It's Addy for the program itself. What the heck are you trying to do with this? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's what Addy... Well, okay. Yeah, we're saying the same thing. Well, I mean, like when we mention Addy, we mean it as a methodology for what we deliver. But Addy could also be applied to the entire program macro. What are you doing with the program itself, right? I don't know. It's almost midnight here. I'm, I'm not dropping what you're saying, but it's <laughs> okay. That's okay. The, I don't... The, the sleeve. Did you see, did you uh, yeah. see my eyes glaze over? I think we've, this is the longest recording session we have ever done ever, I think. So probably um, if we step aside from this, it's like, wow, we're both probably looking tired right now, but we're powering through <laughs> after, after four years of uh, doing this together. We I'm still, we're still setting records, Dave. Uh, okay. 
So let's in the in the spirit of that, um, maybe just a few more points on this chapter. He he does talk a little bit about like within these models having some ability to customize, and he kind of splits it into what I would call light customization and heavy customization. Mm -hmm. Light customization is basically if you have like use cases or examples in there, uh, and you know, for instance, what industries your customers are in, you can swap out those examples to make it more applicable. But if the customization requests go beyond replacing examples. He says you should pass those costs for performing the customization to the customer, which yep. I think is fair. I would I would reiterate that you should pass those costs those costs to your customer, because yep. and make sure that that value is understood because the cost of you spending time, customers always going to want something customized, but you have to make that clear. It takes time yeah, you to have to set that. boundaries around yep. and 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 understanding what level of customization is truly warranted. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Skilljar. In customer education, we know that trained customers are your best customers, which is why companies turn to Skilljar to drive adoption, retention, and efficiency, support their products, and to build healthier, more profitable organizations and strengthen the power of your brand. You don't say, well, just look at some of the great companies that use Skilljar to power their own training programs. That's companies like LinkedIn, Cisco, U-Haul, Spotify, and more. They all trust Skilljar to train their customers, partners, or even employees. And I like that it's well-architected with quality connectors and integrations to Salesforce and HubSpot. We both appreciate their amazing partnership from their customer success team. Get your personal demo for Skilljar at skilljar.com. Customer training made easy. Oh. Um, he talks about how to promote your program during this phase, which I think is interesting because, like, again, marketer, marketer talking about marketing. So... Like some examples he gives are like you can do advertising. So like knowledge builders, for instance, you might actually advertise like, hey, we're we're doing a seminar on how to choose uh, investment options. Uh, personal selling, that's through sales and support. So like you, you give sales and support uh, members talking points on like, hey, we have a training coming up and you should come to it and it costs this much. Uh, sales promotion, that's... That's like allowing customers to sample the programs or giving them coupons so they can like try a little bit before they buy. Um, but I think like where it's most interesting is where he talks about publicity because uh, he gives examples of like common talking points or like reasons you can, you can do publicity for your programs. So like you can advertise the total number of people trained in your program. Uh, you could recognize the inaugural class uh, that completes your educational programs. You can market the results, like a measurable reduction in accidents, failures, or breakdowns attributed to your educational programs if it's like safety oriented. Or on the positive side, you could do like a measurable improvement in production, sales, or qu quality attributed to educational programs. Uh, announcements of new education programs offered to customers or scheduled public education programs. And finally, awards that you've won. These are all forms of publicity that you can. You can, can I ask you a question about this as you're reading I, through this? I suppose, yeah. What, do you think that we as customer education people do a good job with all this? No, but I also think that some of these are spammy. So I don't know that we, like, I think, I think doing, I think doing a good job of this implies two things. It implies number one, that, um, we need to find more ways to promote our program. Uh, but it also implies that we find better ways to promote our programs. Like we should be promoting our programs in ways that uh, imply or deliver value to our customers. And I don't think yeah. like, like some of these are really important, like the measurable improvement, measurable reduction. Like if we can actually generate some train, some uh, uh, result like for the customer as a result of getting trained, we should absolutely be, shouting that to the world and promoting that really well. We don't do this well enough. No. But like, do we need to announce that we won some random award? Probably not. I don't know that the customer cares about that. <laughs> nope. So I, I think it's it, it, like these in, in the year of our Lord 2023, I don't know that all of these publicity uh, points are still relevant, but like, I think the spirit of this is. Agreed. Um, and then uh, also in the spirit of this being um, 1997, he talks about collateral. So he talks about making these like huge program descriptions and catalogs. Uh, so this is like before you have customer LMS systems in place. 
you actually have to print like gigantic booklets with all the course descriptions and the instructor names and, and he gives like kind of stuff yeah he gives he gives like guidance on like how to do fulfillment systems and uh how to like how to hire and staff your training team like do you hire technical experts and teach them how to train or training experts and teach them the technology uh he talks about travel that is the classic he talks about like not having your trainers travel too much because all their time is going to get eaten up by travel and they're going to burn out so it's like all this all this stuff that you have to think about when you're running like a huge uh uh classroom program you know the the last comment i'll make on that is that i i think you've had this experience as well but i've run those teams there's so much good thinking in there and it's worth looking back to look ahead at what you should do for training and delivery. Particularly the, the, the comments that I'll make is don't get yourself in a trap. Make sure that training can scale, make sure you're doing it when it's, when it's important. Um, and it seems to track with what they're saying here in the past too. Like all those things yeah. cost money and cost time and, and don't scale. They didn't use the don't scale part. That's what I'm saying. Well, but it's not like it's not like this model has gone away either, right? There yeah. are still gigantic global training programs that offer uh, on-site public classes, go to client sites and deliver customized training. Like this all still exists. And in I fact, do. this is all still <laughs> expected by enterprise customers, especially yep. in, uh, let's say, certain industries uh, that are not as open to more scalable modalities but like if you're going to build a program around that yeah that's exactly what you have to do to get it to scale you have to invest in a ton of logistics yeah you have to have training partners around the world etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah it's not anything to take lightly it's nothing to take lightly and you know what else you can't take lightly is is measurement which is the last chapter oh evaluation mm, uh, yeah finishing so now we're, we're at the end of addy we're doing evaluation um, there's just like an interesting quote in here that, uh, is apropos of nothing, uh, by Robert Stake, who I actually don't know who that is, but, um, presumably someone who knows something about instructional design. Uh, he says formative evaluation is when the cook tastes the soup. Summative evaluation is when the guests taste the soup. I like that one. Yeah. Next time someone asks you about formative versus summative evaluation, you can use that one I guess. and then we'll. Thank Robert Stake for that. Um, but he also describes Kirkpatrick, like, right? Yeah, we're we're going into Kirkpatrick, and he uses Kirkpatrick as the framing for pretty much the rest of the chapter. But before that, he's basically saying there are there are three outcomes of your program. Uh, one is it's going to be evaluated on whether it was effective. Like, did it do what it was intended to do? Did it get the outcome that it was supposed to get? Uh, whether it was efficient, i.e. it was cost-effective, uh, you got ROI on it, um, and that it was appealing, i.e. people enjoyed it. Right. And then he kind of discards that in favor of talking about Kirkpatrick because this all kind of maps to Kirkpatrick. And so he's describing like the different ways that you can measure um, the different levels. And it's not that different from what we do today. Yeah, like questionnaires. He, al he also calls Kirk Kirkpatrick Don instead of Donald, which I wonder if they knew each what? other because that, that seems very familiar. He's oh, like yeah. Okay, maybe. That's funny. Don's yeah. Don's methodology. Don's method. Don Kirkpatrick. Yeah, I like that. Is it like it's very familiar? It's nice. Um, I, I'm just so used to hearing it as Donald. But yeah, so like nothing, nothing too kooky in level one or two. In level two, he talks about certification, which we'll come back to in a moment. But like level three, it's interesting. He he says this is actually the hardest one to measure in customer education, which I agree with, by the way, because level three is all about measuring behavior change and application. And you don't have access to your customers to see whether they're changing their behavior for a lot of products. Yeah. Uh, in SaaS, we actually do now because we have telemetry. Oh, you beat me to it. <laughs> yeah, for, for our products, we can actually monitor whether customers are, are doing what we what we train them to do or not. But like for a lot of products, it's it's difficult. And certainly in 1997, it was extremely difficult. Um, and then level four, which is about business results. This 
goes back to if you design the program right. So he talks about like here's where he talks about the whole like correlation versus causation thing and you can look at the change in the overall results and you can't attribute it all back to education. But um, I, I kind of like his approach here. He says, rather than correlating your educational program to the overall outcome, address to what degree the educational program was responsible for improving results and look for positive side effects. Yeah. So like it's all low he's, impact. he's getting impact, at that like correlation impact. versus causation debate that we always talk about. It's such a hard one though, even today because we're getting better. But, you know, again, it goes back to a couple of things. One, when you start out, you need to understand what hooks you're going to uh, use, what what things you're going to measure and measure them in while you're developing your program. So it's not an easy feat whatsoever, but you can do it. And if you have a good data scientist on the team, they can they can do things that you can't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you can do these analyses. It, we have we have more ability to do it than we ever had before. But like, I think we need to recognize that even if you can do regression analyses and look at longitudinal cohorts, you know, <laughs> like, like all those things that, that you can be doing um, from a, a data science perspective. Um, sorry, it's midnight. I'm not using the right terminology here. Um, <laughs> you can't brain anymore. But, yeah. Like, like even, even if you're doing that, like customer education is still one of several things that could be happening at the same time. So like, I, I like, I like that he's, he's saying here, and I think this is still true that the correlation is not the Holy grail rather it's having uh, like an intellectually honest uh, explanation and continuing to try to understand the effect that customer education is having on those downstream uh, outcomes. I want to, I want to take a brief, run by of the certification point because I thought that was interesting. He talks about that as a level two measurement. And he's he's saying like he's starting by talking about certification as being this like really high stakes professional accreditation thing. Like he's talking about like EMTs needing certification uh, and how certification is important there because if an EMT doesn't do their job correctly, then uh, people die and you can like really get sued. Yeah. Um, right. You can you can go to like turbo jail. But turbo the, gel? yeah, turbo gel. But the but then he says certification has also become popular in the information technology industry. Microsoft reports that it experienced a tenfold increase in customers it certified through its various training programs. And why is that? Uh, because um, you get higher service level, like you can you can perform the service better. You can complete tasks quicker. You understand new tech faster. You provide leadership to other staff. Uh, you have greater self-esteem and customers hiring people who are able to work with the products you sell them. Yeah. Yeah. So these are all, all the benefits of certifying your customers. And this is, this is a, a, a mindset that I think continues to exist in, in education teams like executives want to do certification programs with the assumption that these are the benefits that, that they will yield. But he, he asks, Oh, and it's an incentive to complete to complete training programs. Like Microsoft says 74% of people agree that certification, like they'll, they'll be more likely to com complete a, a training program if there's a certification at the end. But he says like, if cert is so good, then why is it so rare? <laughs> because it's so hard and <laughs> expensive because it's expensive and this is like the shadow side of certification that we don't talk about especially if you're doing like real high stakes certification in this book and i'm sure costs are different today and also these are 1997 uh microsoft spends 45 to fifty thousand dollars to develop one certification easy yeah yeah I, you know so, we go back to that. I would I would come back and say the conversation about certification and credentialing is really important to have. And the best practice probably is to determine is is my product or platform one that an individual using it could have a really it, there's risk. There's high risk at something yeah. negative happening because of the user's interaction with the platform. If that's at a, a degree of value so high that it's like the company's going to lose millions of dollars, 
people could get hurt, you know, those kinds of things, then I would say certification in a formal context is important. But if you're just mm -hmm. looking, you know, like I'm connect, trying to connect back, why it's so rare is because it is expensive. And those who try to do it, and, and I've done this, I've been this person, don't have your eyes fully open to all the things that are going to happen as you build such a program. Oh my God. I mean, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars in people time, yeah. system yeah. time, the process. It's you got to maintain it and update it. Yeah. And, and You're don't be getting customer support questions about it. You, you like, once you commit, there's no going back at all. Yeah. Retiring a cert is very difficult, but it also like, it, that's why I also think like you can use even the questions that he had earlier about like whether to package training as a standalone offering yeah. to also determine whether there's demand for cert. Like are there, is there a critical mass of people who can actually build a business around this offering and who want to like, like do you see actual market demand for this? If so, then maybe you can do a real certification. Is there real risk? Yes, then you should do a real certification. But if you're not really meeting those same criteria, then you have to look at some of these purported effects of certification, like higher service levels, completing tasks quicker, understanding new tech faster. And you, you have to ask, like, does that need a certification or can that be like a certificate? Can that be a badge, a badge. at the end of a course? Yeah. It can probably be a badge. Most, yeah, absolutely. It will accomplish like 90% of the same things. And, and, and then cost. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You won't be spending $50,000 to develop your badge. Final line of the book. He ends, it's like a bummer ending. He, he ends by, by talking about um, ROI, right? Because he's, he's in the Kirkpatrick model. And sometimes we add ROI at the end of the Kirkpatrick model. Uh, the Jack Phillips model is, is to take Kirkpatrick and then put ROI at the end. Um, and so he says, like, you can you can be looking at all of these results and you can look at correlation versus causation and try to really understand the effects of your program. But he says, quote, return on investment should be your aim with every educational program you develop. Yet knowing its actual value is extremely elusive. Yep. Yeah. End of book. Not not untrue. That's true. It's no, it's it's entirely true, but it's. um it's it's like uh, in a way it's sort of like calling back to the the Claudia Gayard Mir book, where you know <laughs> she's sort of talking about the ROI of these programs too, and why customer education hasn't uh, been formalized as a discipline in in 1984, and it also kind of goes back to ROI, right? Kind of end in the same place. Well, this is why I kind of think that now, I mean, we have work to do here. But now we have a real possibility of formalizing, normalizing customer education with a series of methodologies, practices, and tools that work. And the, hard, the hardest part about ROI goes back to what we said before. You've got to know what you're measuring. You've got to build towards those goals. You actually have to have real business you know, outcomes. Um, but if you want to get the return on investment, this needs to be an intentional act. And you need to be prepared to spend money on it. And you need to be prepared at first to invest and understand that, I mean, this isn't most of education um, a lagging indicator in pretty much all contexts. What do you mean? I mean, if I teach you today how to do something, it's going to take until tomorrow to see if you've actually done anything with it. And uh, Yeah, yeah, that's true. So getting the return on investment is always going to be one we have to do analysis with. It's not really direct, pr directly proportional to activities in the moment. I can't see an immediate feed. Right. Nor, nor should you hold yourself to the standard of needing to calculate ROI before you've even invested in the program or right. built it to at least an MVP that can start to have an effect on, on the customer. So like, I mean, I like what, what he said throughout the book about both, I think, tying customer education to marketing goals, uh, as well as ultimately like customer service and loyalty goals, but being extremely clear about what goals you're trying to influence with customer education, what performance objectives 
that it will change and tying your programs to those. Like everything he's talked about, the force field analysis, uh, this this is, I think, like a really solid um, perspective on how to build programs that will have some sort of impact in the business and how to explain what problem it's solving and get a, uh, a read on on how you'll you'll look at the results that were generated, regardless of if you can exactly correlate it to the training intervention. Yeah, that's what we can hope for. Yeah. So Dave, like, I guess wrapping this up, um, we've read, <laughs> we've read this book. We've read the, the 1984 book. Yeah. Have we solved the mystery? Like what happened to customer education? This thing that was being defined in 1984 and this thing that now has like distinct strategies and tactics attached to it in 1997. Where did it go? Has it been here the whole time, just under different names? I think so. I, I mean, remember the phrase I always like to use, it's customer education is new and not new. I think the yeah. it, it's like a shadow practice. It's been in the shadows forever, but not. I mean, it's been there. People always talk about education. We always talk about these things. But it seems but let like- me, it, But let me- Go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. No, let me let me ask you this. Like, this is what I'm curious about. Not necessarily like I don't think customer education literally disappeared for 25 years. My my question is more like in these books, customer education is being primarily described as a sales and marketing activity. So this mm -hmm. thing that is called customer education is attached to sales and marketing. It's not just in software. Sassin is not even around yet in these books. And yet then, like 25 years later, Customer education reemerges in the context of SaaS, specifically as a post-sales motion. Something was happening between 1997 and 2010 or so. And I'm marking 2010 as like when customer success kind of comes into its own. Software uh, leading the world. Kind of stems out of it. Do you think that's it? This episode is brought to you by TechSmith. That's right, TechSmith. You know them from Snagit and Camtasia. Snagit lets you create images, GIFs, and videos to show others exactly what you see. And Camtasia is the famous screen recording and video editing software made easy. Yeah, I love it, Adam. You know, I have to say my story here is that Camtasia kind of saved my soul. When I was working, trying to build my first program, I discovered Camtasia and other TechSmith products, and I needed something that was relatively inexpensive, easy to use, and powerful. Overnight, I went from doing tedious editing, recording, and just whatever I had available to me alone with little coaching, being able to make really super high quality videos in a short amount of time. That sounds amazing. And so if you want to create and share images and videos for better training, tutorials, lessons, and everyday communication, you can do that at techsmith.com. That's techsmith.com. No, that's what comes to me. It's okay. I'm just going to riff for a minute, but I think this is really important to end it up on. I feel like, again, going back to a frame up, we were kind of bookended, our career is kind of bookended by this journey of this education where we started out early in our careers living in this ecosystem of emerging software and strategies to solve the problems and the internet happened. You know, Netscape, uh, all that kind of the stuff. The World Wide Web and BBSs. Yeah, Wide Web and all these technolo technological interventions and now all these new tools have emerged. And the conversation started to change because when you think about marketing and stuff, I remember being in marketing teams early on in like early 2000s, late 90s, marketing was had a different tone and timbre. You're talking about books and going to conferences and stuff. But then in the middle of that, I was working in a marketing organization where I'm now everything's about web and it exploded. And now we're doing all these things online. Webinars are emerging and we're putting online material out there for all this stuff. And the conversation just flipped. And I, I feel like what happened is that we were all like people were continuing to forge forward and do the things that they thought they needed to do. But it all of this emergent technology was disrupting, disrupting, disrupting. It's like, God, a, a rapid evolution where you're constantly having these minor apocalypses on a poor life form and forcing it through evolutionary change. And it's kind of like what happened is 
just kept getting kicked and beat up and massaged and learning. And then now 25 years, you know, 40 years later, depending on which book you use, it's all been there, right? It's all there. But what we're, we're kind of saying is today we understand that all of this thing is called customer education. And now this is what it looks like. It hasn't gone yeah. away. It's just yeah. transformed. And now it's a known quantity and it is a practice that we can label and use repeatedly uh, in a repeatable manner. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I think I have like a slightly different hypothesis, but it's not like out of keeping with yours. I just find this so fascinating. What What's different? Like, I mean, what would, uh, uh, what nuance okay, would like you here's, So we have to think on one hand about, there, there's two things that are fundamentally different about customer education as being described in these books and how we know it today. Uh, one is that it's primarily being described as a pre-sales activity, sales and marketing. Uh -huh. The second is that it's being described not as a thing that only exists in tech, right? And yeah. not that I'm saying the customer education today is only in tech, but we don't know a lot of people who are in, um, like, like let's let's say what, like manufacturing or uh, uh, finance or CPG or industries like that that are describing the thing they do pre-sales as customer education, right? It's just not mm -hmm. called that. No. So I think a couple of things happened. Um, one is that, first of all, outside of tech, all of these activities have kept going, right? Like people are still producing documentation. They're still writing instruction manuals. They're still uh, educating the customer pre-sales. But I think like, it has, I think, I think this stuff still lives in sales and marketing. Yeah. It's just not really called customer education there. It, it might be called um, content strategy or okay. like knowledge, knowledge centered service or uh, even like technical writing in some cases. What about sales enablement? I don't know if they call it sales enablement outside of tech, but yes, whatever the equivalent of sales enablement is like, like, yeah. Enabling the sales force to actually sell the, the product. Yes. That, I think that's where that's like, it all still exists. It's just kind of like called different things. And then inside of tech, something different happened. I think like what is being described as customer education here was kind of like trifurcated and subsumed. So it's split <laughs> into three. Yeah, these are these are midnight thoughts. Uh, it's split. It's split into three things. Like one is definitely product marketing. Like everything that he's talking about here in terms of marketing, market readiness, sales enablement, like in like in the Pfizer example, um, all of that lives in product marketing and and sales operations now. It's all still around in tech, right? But all that stuff about like positioning and enabling the salespeople to do the demos and handle objections. That's all in either sales enablement or product marketing. And one big thing that product marketing does is sales enablement, right? So it never really left sales and marketing. It just got a new name. Like a lot of this book is about what we call product marketing today, not actually about what we call customer education today. Then the pieces that are more related to service, like call deflection, ticket deflection, and customer loyalty, which even in this book seem to have like shared ownership and, and yeah. in the, the yeah. 1984 book, right? Like it's like sometimes in service, yeah, sometimes in sales, sometimes in marketing. Um, that stuff I think ended up, that ended up going into customer success and then eventually being recreated as customer education as we know it today, once they realized that they needed to make that more scalable. Mm -hmm. Cause like, Think about it. It's 1997 in this book. Customer success, like the beginning of customer success is only like six years away. We're not that, it's not, this is not ancient history. Like customer success is, is, is coming. Yes. Right on the, right on the forefront, but then customer success had to evolve. Customer success had to evolve. It had to kind of like merge a little bit with support because customer success and customer support weren't always in the same org and sometimes still aren't in the same org. So 
all of that like service design, customer support stuff, that kind of went down its own path. But then, especially in tech, you had this third thing. And uh, I was talking with uh, with Sharon Castillo, who we who we mentioned uh, uh, on a different episode that we recorded tonight. Uh, so, so that's not helpful. Uh, she's she's at Okta now, but she's she's run uh, many successful uh, training organizations. And um, she pointed out to me when we were talking about the 1984 book. She's like, Adam, I was there. Like, I was I I worked with with digital, which is one of the case studies from the 1984 book. Uh, yeah. I knew their team. Uh, I was around <laughs> in 1987. Like, I, I I did this, and I was like, okay, so can you explain to me like what happened? She's like, well there was a lot of consolidation of these various customer education functions into education services teams. And the education services team served both pre-sales and post-sales use cases. Oh. Uh, they did both sometimes internal and external training. So all of the, like the training stuff specifically, like what this book would call, I think the value add training got siphoned off into more like standalone education services business. So it's exactly what the book is describing, but I think putting the emphasis on, hey, you know what? Like as a tech company with a really complicated product, we know that customers are willing to pay us to teach them how to use the product. They've they've laid off their HR teams and they're expecting vendors to train them. We will train them as a business. So that's that's how education services really started growing, like I think in the 90s and into the 2000s, okay. which is yeah, why by the time we get to like more modern customer education, as we know it now, like not education services, but this kind of more like SaaS, uh, sometimes pre-sales, sometimes marketing, sometimes customer success, fee-to-free spectrum customer education has one foot in the world of education services, just modified for SaaS and especially modified for product-led growth companies um, because when you're product-led and you're not dealing with a lot of enterprise customers and the perceived barrier to entry has to be low, you have to package in your training and it can't be the standalone offering because that makes your product seem more complex. So that's right. why education services had a tough time getting foothold in product-led companies until they went mm. enterprise. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then like those companies grow and they mature and they start acquiring more enterprise customers. And then they realize they have to build training services again. And, 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 and the cycle continues there, but like all of that stuff, basically I think got like subsumed and acquired by education services, businesses, education services, businesses built standard ways of doing, they had organizations uh, that, that, that taught them best practices for, for being better at education services and then like SaaS and product-led growth came along and needed something that was different. And that thing that was different is what we now call customer education. And now that's kind of like going back and informing other fields like, well, education services are now looking at customer education practices. But they're, but they're informing each other, right? Because like customer, yeah. customer education, like, like the new customer education is half based on education services. And now mm -hmm. education services is also saying, well, let's look at what customer education did to kind of adapt to its own market. And now let's infuse our practices with some of that. So it's, it's, it's cyclical, but I think customer education, the other thing customer education did differently because of the types of businesses that we're supporting. And because we're dealing with SaaS products in a customer success environment where the customer is constantly renewing, well, what are we doing? We're almost doing a sales and marketing function. We're just, marketing and selling a renewal instead of a, uh, yeah. initial sale. And that just didn't really exist in, in like 1984. It wasn't a thing. No. It's fascinating. So I, I think that's what happened. Well, we'll have this emerging story over time. I think we're not going to, not going to quit looking for resources and books and talk about the history. And if you were around for this, if you were around in 1984 or 1997 or any of the, the intermittent period where you can help us unravel this mystery, like, like Benoit Blanc himself, well, <laughs> I would implore you, I would implore you, dear listener, to get in the comments. 
Tell us what happened. I think that's a good, good transition to help us take this home. All right. Any other comments? Otherwise, I'll start closing it out. Yeah. We talked a lot. Well done on this one, Adam. This was a good book. This was a good read. Definitely in our C-Lab um, book club now. We should probably put that list up on uh, the website. We should. We should, um, as well as all the recommendations you make. Hey, actually, one more thing. Uh, Peter Hobine, yeah. if you are somehow listening to this, uh, come on the show. We want to interview you. Yeah, we've spent uh, quite a lot of time on your on your book here. We would love to reach out, and we'll probably at mention you on LinkedIn because I know you're out there. All right, everybody. Well, thanks again for listening. This has been uh, this has been our marathon of episode creation. If you want to learn more, we have a podcast website at customer.education. There you can find our show notes and other material. And if you found value, yes, this is a value add in this podcast, share with your friends, your peers, over beers, in your network. Help us find the others. And if you want more of a knowledge builder, you can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, thanks, Alan Coda, for the theme music. You know the drill. Leave us a review. Uh, please don't make it about how we talk too long on this episode. We're, we're trying. We're trying to provide value. Uh, but, you know, if, if we helped you, then uh, we'd always welcome a, a positive review and uh, help, our, help share our little show with the rest of the world. Well put. And to our audience, thanks again for joining us. Get out there, educate, experiment, and find your people. Cheers. Ta-ta.